happy to be back with you. We'll see how it goes. Three months not preaching. God's good. Hey, can we thank our fantastic teaching team for uh, filling this pulpit so well over the last three months? And today we begin a deep dive into the most important, most significant concept in the Bible. And we sure worshiped about that theme today. It's the, it's the topic of grace. We're calling the whole series Grace Wins because it's going to be a very victorious, hopeful time. There's a story of a gathering of global religious leaders sometime after World War II. And in one of the conference uh, gatherings, they were, a group was debating what set the different world religions apart. What made them distinct? And eventually Christianity came up. What, what sets Christianity apart? You know, is it the idea of, is it monotheism? Well, no, that's, that's not it. Not just a, a single God who created. A, a God who took on human form. Is that what sets us apart? The incarnation, even the resurrection. And as important as those teachings are, there are analogs of that in many world religions. And uh, as the debate began to elevate C.S. Lewis, who wrote Chronicles of Narnia, a great children's series, but also had been an atheist, a professor, and had come to Christ later in life um, and became a great apologist for the Christian faith. Every, Christ, every person trying to understand Christianity should read his book, Mere Christianity. It's a classic that still stands the test of time. So C.S. Lewis comes into the room and says, what are you debating? And they said, we're trying to land on the thing that sets Christianity apart. And his answer was, that's easy. It's grace. It's the one thing that, to me, helps me understand that what we follow is not a man-made religion. Because man-made religion depend on men and women accomplishing, achieving, attaining some sort of approval and moral status. And our faith tells us that in the end, for the ultimate good that we hope for, we cannot attain that. And God chooses in His love to reach down and act on our behalf. And that's grace. That's amazing grace. Mm. So when we start with this, of course, let's define the term. The word grace in the Greek charis, we get the word charity from that word. It means God's undeserved favor or blessing, and that's what we're going to have the privilege of looking at, and, and uh, it's going to be an amazing journey. We're going to be, believe it or not, studying the subject of grace right through to the end of September. Do you think there's enough to cover on the subject? Well, let me explain, first of all, why we've chosen to do that at this point in time. Malia used a phrase in her testimony, by the way, I had forgotten that Malia was the very first person to come to Christ at the journey, and she was, and today she's uh, a, one of our great leaders here pointing you to Jesus every week. Uh, great blessing to hear her tell her story. I forgot that you were a party girl. I forgot that. <laughs> because you're such a prophetess now. God's grace. She used a phrase, we are a grace-saturated environment, and that comes from our original vision statement as a church. You heard Paul 
periodically, uh, Paul Joyle, speak about that being one of the things that attracted him to the ideas of the journey. And this has been a place where people have experienced God's grace. But we have actually never taught directly on the subject. So it's high time we do that. Because as much as you think you know about grace and as much as we cherish it and appreciate its impact in our life, none of us grasp its scope. It's time for us to do that. So it's going to be a deep, transformational, at times tough and hard, but ultimately leading us to incredible joy and worship as a part of it. The second reason why right now we're going to look at grace is because we're about to head into the next great adventure as a church. We have taken possession of the property on Greenwood Street in the next couple of weeks. We're going to ask those of you that have said you're willing to be a part of it in some way to make good on that. We're going to start working over there and getting ready. We're going to start building our ministry teams and we hope to begin services over there sometime in November. And whenever a church goes through a season like this, plenty of opportunity for the enemy to come in and use what ought to be growth opportunities as divisive opportunities. Conflict is a normal part of life. There's nothing wrong with conflict. We need conflict. Frankly, without it, life would be boring. It would be boring. Conflict makes the world interesting. Conflict allows people with different perspectives to come together and find a greater, greater godly good and a greater purpose. But the enemy comes in in situations like this and hurt can come in. And, and we need to, grace is the lubricant that allows the body of Christ to function in love. And so we need to be reminded of that even now, all of us, I do, our staff and each of you, that great, we lead with grace in the same way we've received grace. And then the third reason we're taking this on is because if there's a subject our world needs to be reminded of right now, (laughs) whether it's Washington or Worcester, and every place in between, it's the subject of grace. We have seemed to have lost the concept completely, and Christians have been swept up in that animosity and anger, and it's time for us to recover our superpower in the midst of this and that's grace. So that's why we're into all this, all right? I'm excited about what God's going to do. Today, we're going to start in the book of James as our launching point. Say this with me. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, you might say, Tom, why are we starting here when it comes to grace, you know, why don't we start with like the passage that Malia read? That's like one of the great passages about grace. Well, that's week three. We have to get there by understanding what James is getting at when he says God opposes the proud, but if we're going to be those who deeply and profoundly receive God's grace, there's a humbling that has to exist in our spirit and in our life. The big idea is this today. People who fully understand and deeply experience God's grace are those who understand their desperate need for it. That's a starting point. If you don't get there, then God's grace will be cheap. Faith will be foolish. It's the humble heart that enters into the fullness of God's grace. 
Turn with me to that passage. It's James chapter 4. It's page 856 in the Pew Bible. Love for you to grab that if you don't have your own Bible. By the way, we have Bibles that we'd love to give away to you. Come to the Connect Center after the service, and we'd be happy to give you a Bible, uh, a modern translation that's easy to read, and some study helps to help you understand the basics of faith. James chapter 4. Let's, let's read the passage beginning with that, verse 6. God gives us more grace. This is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble, shows grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Some of you right now may be thinking, Tom, you really built us up to this joyful thing, and this is where you've got us? Let's put the joy aside and do a little weeping together? This is not the start I anticipated. So here's the clear warning today. is might be sobering for some of us in our effort to begin well in understanding grace. Bad news is often the best news because it leads us in the right direction. It was 2013 that Vitalina and I drove into uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital to just have a routine follow-up on some surgery she had had, and we simply expected him to say things look good and uh, go home, enjoy your life. Instead, Vit went in first, and the doctor said, I've got some news for you. It's not good. And Vit said, I I think I want my husband here. And so they came out together. I came in, and we walked into the doctor's office, and this very loving, one of the most revered surgeons in the world today, looked at us, and with tenderness and obvious pain, gave us the worst news of our life. Vid had cancer. (laughs) Nobody wants that news. Nobody expects it. But we desperately needed it. Not only did we need to know the diagnosis, we needed to hear about the prognosis. Is it curable? And, And what will the treatment be? What will we have to go through in order to move from this? We needed that moment in order to be cured and to have life in front of us. And I want to let you know, today Vitalina is cancer-free. Praise God. It was, it was one of those that was treatable. But we needed that moment by someone who cared enough about us to tell us what we needed in order to find the cure. That, that's what today is about. That's what James does in his Bible. The book of James is the hardest read for Christians because he doesn't let us get away with anything. He calls our bluff. Show me your faith, and let's talk grace. Let's, let's talk about real grace. Grace comes to the broken, to the, to the humble. People who fully understand and deeply experience God's grace are those who understand their desperate need for it. And so, that's why we're going to start there today. The, the verse, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, puts against 
each other two types of persons, the proud and the humble. The word opposes there, by the way, in Greek, doesn't mean God's just stubborn or resistant. It means organized resistance. It's a military term. God actively comes against those who Scripture describes as proud, whatever, whatever the Bible means about that. But God offers undeserved favor to those who are humble. So it's worth exploring what those mean, don't you think? So the term proud in the Bible is not a person that has a healthy self-image. You know, they, they, they think properly of themselves and they have confidence. That's, that's not what it means. The, the word proud in Scripture is about people who are self-reliant as opposed to being reliant on God. Self-reliant, self-willed, self-seeking, self-promoting. This is how Scripture and the church fathers described our natural state as a, a, a fallen race. Essentially, as a race, there is a cancer in all of us. We have turned from our life, which was meant to be God-focused, into ourselves, and we are self-focused, self-dependent. That, that's what the word means. The word humble is the opposite of that. It's God-reliant, God-seeking, God-honoring, God-focused. The person that has reached the end of what they can achieve on them, uh, by themselves, and they realize, I, I, I'm not going to achieve anything unless I turn my life back and seek and hunger after God. One of the folks in our recovery community, that uh, many of whom worship here, and then come to the Thursday night Bible study said, you know, that's the first step to coming out of addiction, is that very acknowledgement. Well, that's a Christian principle, and we're experiencing step one of recovering from the cancer of sin and entering into life and, and grace in God. The proud are also self-deceiving. They create and write a false story about themselves and about others. You see, and pretty much all of us have that. All of us have a way that we uh, address people that is, is somewhat of an invention. I want you to perceive me in a certain way, and so I'm carefully reacting and talking and presenting myself. It's a racket. It's a racket. For the proud, that becomes armor for them. No one's going to get inside the real me. I am never going to let people see me other than this person that I'm pretending exists. And here's the thing. We lie to ourselves best. So that person is the person that when you come to them and, you know, and, and there's conflict, that's the person that's never wrong. That's the person that uh, always, uh, always is on the attack, turns it back, never going to admit that there's a growth area in their life that has to be addressed. And probably there's a lot of you that are exactly like that because you were born that way. The humble are self aware. They have an honest assessment of themselves. I love hanging out with our recovery people. They got nothing, nothing left to prove. They're, they're, they hit the bottom, they're on the way up. They're moving forward. They, they are the most real people that I've ever met. 
because they know that they can't fake anymore. All of us have to get to that place. I remember when I first became a senior pastor and uh, at my previous church, and we had a lot of great things going on, but um, also it was the very first time I was the object of criticism because as an associate pastor, I got to do all the things the church, at my other church before that, I got to do everything that people wanted to have done. So they were all really happy with me. Senior pastor was the one that got their focus, their, their object of frustration. When that first started happening to me, and I found people like judging my heart, man, that, that was the worst possible thing for a, a person like me, a musician type, you know, a, a performer type. It was very hard. And um, God allowed me to be around some people who were on a journey towards self-awareness spiritually. And uh, I began to come out from behind my own racket. You know, my own story that I, I was trying to convince myself and others about me. And when people came at me, I remember a, a dear sweet woman, uh, great, great wise, said to me, you know, Tom, you know that there's nothing somebody could say about you. That you don't know there's far worse going on in your heart. Boom. That wasn't because she knew those things, but she was a woman who was humble and self-aware. And she knew it was true of her. So of course it's true of me. Here's the reality. There's nothing you can say to me that I don't know. There's a whole lot worse going on inside of me. I need to be on this journey, and I'm calling you to it also. Because the worst thing is to have one person that's trying to be self-aware and another person that's the proud trying to work together. You know, we, this is where God calls all of us to be because that's the place where we receive grace together and where we minister grace to one another. I will be clear to say I'm still a work in, in progress. So are you. So let's move forward together into God's grace. Amen? All right, so to do that, we're now going to the book of Romans. I ask you to turn there with me. Romans chapter 3, it's page 779 in the Pew Bibles. The book of, we're going to be in Romans a fair amount during this series because it's, it's Paul's theological treatise about the gospel and about grace. I mean, there will be times when we're studying in the book of Romans where you would be so overwhelmed with what God's grace has made possible in your life that just like Paul, you're gonna break out in song. There are times when Paul just stops and pauses and, and, and writes a hymn about this glorious thing that is ours because of God's grace. It's an amazing book, but he starts in a humble place. He starts by speaking truth and love about the human condition so that we might fully enter into grace. And uh, without getting into the whole chapters, uh, let me just tell you what, what has come before Romans chapter three. He begins by explaining the fallen nature of the whole human race. That our being created to be God-focused and God-honoring became broken and fallen when we chose instead to find our own way, to live for ourselves, to turn in on our, on our, into ourselves rather than to reflect God's glory. 
And he describes intently, he doesn't hold anything back, the result of that brokenness. And I'm going to read that for you, at least just a portion of it. You don't have to turn there. You can just take it in. It's going to be hard enough for you to take it in, let alone turn to it. This is what he says. So, the human race did not think it worthy to retain the knowledge of God. And so God turned it over to the result, which was a depraved mind. So in other words, God didn't break the human race, but he let us break ourselves. He let the result of our decisions. After all, isn't that what you want? Self-determination? People say, what about free will? Yeah, look where it's gotten us. God did give us free will. And this is the result of it. And so he goes on. And he says, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. (laughs) What? They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's way, that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, I just read one of the hardest passages in all the Bible. In fact, the rules of modern sociology say, I I just really broke the ultimate rule. Because what I'm saying is, rather than you being essentially a good person, which is what humanism wants to propose, that we're all born good, that somehow bad things happen to us, that's enlightenment. The age of enlightenment said, uh, abandon the idea that there is a wound in us that God needs to heal, and said, no, we're all born clean slates, and all we need is education and science and technology and the right social structure, and we will create utopia. We will create the perfect society. And we are now centuries into that experiment. And we're an alien civilization (laughs) to come down and take the 10,000-foot level of the American and the global culture and to read our Facebook and Twitter posts and make a general observation of us, this is what they would report back. This is exactly it. And what makes this hard is that it mixes all these things like right inside all the worst that humanity can do. Murder, you know, all for inventing wickedness. And then they talk about gossip. Disobedience to parents. You go, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. The, those don't belong in this list. Those are my issues. You, know, you, you can't say that I'm as bad as those other people. Well, from a 10,000-foot view, this is our condition. So now we go on to chapter 3 and uh, begin reading, following along with me as I begin reading in verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous. This is the concluding point. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. 
There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, speaking of the Old Testament law, which the Jewish people thought was how you got right with God. It says what the law, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will become righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law or any attempt to follow a moral code, what we do is become conscious of our sin. In the end, any attempt to build the utopian society, to follow some moral standards, all that does is prove the impossibility of it because you have a cancer. And the most loving thing a gracious God can do is to help you see that so that He can bring healing and life. And even though on an earthly level we do degrees of judgment of one another and find ourselves better than others, what we learn about being humble is that the reality is that whether you're a banker living on the northwest side or a drug dealer operating on the south side, whether you're a lady of society in Tuckerman Hall or a lady of the night at the Motel 6, whether you're a PhD candidate or a high school dropout, whether you're wealthy or homeless, whether you're a priest or a pornographer, a Democrat or a Republican, a socialist or a capitalist, a New York Yankee or a Red Sox. Can you singular a Red Sox? <laughs> the fact is, there is zero difference between us. And we all equally are in desperate need of God's grace. And as much as that's the hard news, it's also the beginning of the good news. Because the person that fully understands and deeply experiences God's grace are those of us in here who are able to humble ourselves and recognize our desperate need for it. Can you get there with me? Can you get there with me? If you can, God's grace is very near to you. It's very near to you. And for many of us, whether we're the self-made man or woman or we're the religious Puritans who take pride in who we've become, uh, the path to humility is putting aside that self-reliance. But there are others of you here who when I have described this, it has been like pounding you know, nails into your emotional coffin because there's those of you here who every time I talk about our brokenness, you go, yeah, that, that, that's me. I am a completely broke. Some of you have such a poor, broken image of yourself that 
If I don't say something to you directly right now, I'll just serve to push you farther into your desperation, and that's not what I want to say to you. Some of you believe you have been so battered and deserved it, and you're so aware of your failure and so aware of what you think is the impossibility of for you to climb out of your station and the hopelessness of it. And, so, and some of you believe that you deserve it, that you, you're hearing what I'm saying as though I'm, I'm pounding you down and affirming the impossibility that you could receive grace. Now, what I want to do with you is help you understand the difference between the truth in love that God has spoken and the lie that comes from the pit of hell. See? The truth that God has spoken is an honest diagnosis spoken in love. What Satan does is twist that truth because he wants you exactly where you are. He wants you broken forever. So when we talk about our, our failure, he wants to hear you say uh, that God is angry at you. God is, God's, God's pouncing on you. That, that you have no hope of ever finding the grace that Malia spoke of. That's a lie from Satan. And my challenge to you is to push that aside and let God speak truth and love to you. Let him do that. Because when God speaks about our, our need, God's doing it out of love. When Satan talks about your failures, he's doing it out of hatred. When God talks about your need for grace, he has your healing in mind. When Satan reminds you of your failures, he has your destruction in mind. When God speaks to you in love about the condition that you're in and your need for grace, he's not trying to condemn you, but he is trying to convict you do you know the difference? Satan wants you to experience condemnation. There's a really powerful verse in John 3, 18. It's right after the most, one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. Jesus' own words. In fact, this is the very first teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And so it sets the tone for everything. It reminds us who Jesus is. By the way, let's back up to John 1 before we go here because John says this about Jesus. Let's say this together. The Word became flesh and lived among us and we beheld His glory, the one and only Son who came from the Father full of and truth. Full of grace and truth. See, Jesus came to bring grace to us, but it required bringing truth to us. And so he says in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's grace. But then he goes on, and in verse 17, he says this. Say this with me. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn it, 
but to save the world through him. And so wherever you are, whatever it is that may cause you to fear the humbling nature of admitting your desperate need for God's forgiveness, know this, God is speaking truth and love to you through his word, not to condemn you. That's the wrong voice speaking to you right now. God's saying it so he can bring the cure into your life. And those of you that are already beat down and know too well your failures and may be listening to a different voice that wants you to be hopeless in it, I want to tell you that you are the people in this room who are closest to experiencing God's grace. And with God's help, all of us will kneel in humility with you and then turn to the Father. So what is the result? How do we respond to this as we begin this series? Well, James gives us the response. If, in fact, God opposes the proud and gives this grace to the humble, what do we do then? He says it. Submit yourselves, then, to God. Wash your hands. Purify your hearts. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. First, get real about your condition. And then he says this. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And what will the result be? That he'll go, yeah, stay there. I'm going to beat you down a little harder now that I got you where I want you. Now, what's he say? Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So here's the big idea. People who fully understand and deeply experience God's grace are those who understand their desperate need for it. And my prayer for all of you, whether you've been a Jesus follower a long time, is that you will recover that understanding of who you may be now apart from God's grace or who you were at one time before grace found you so that together we can plumb the depths of this amazing thing called God's grace. There's this important passage right in the middle of the first, um, the first chapters of the book of Romans. You know, those just deadly passages about our brokenness and our sin, that some of which I've read for you. Right in the middle of it, there's this statement that Paul reminds us. God's kindness, which in this case is represented him by him sitting us down like the good doctor and telling us about the cancer of sin in our life. That's his kindness. But that is intended to lead us to repentance. Because that's always God's posture. Arms open, come to me, and find grace. Hmm. Let's commit to finding a deeper understanding of God's grace together in these weeks. Can you join me in that? Let's just bow quietly for a few moments in prayer. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. We're going to leave that verse on the screen. If you want to just look at it and contemplate the reality of it and what God may be saying to you. And then let's recognize that it's a good and loving God 
that asks us to come to him humbly that we might be lifted up into his grace.